Hi everyone, Peg Mulqueen here and welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. When I practice yoga, it's a way to stretch. There's no spirituality. someone I have been in absolute awe of for quite some time. He is a total legend in the climbing world. Conrad Anker. I think the fact that there's that element of danger and risk helps with the mind. You're in a situation where all the, um, the, the consequences of making a mistake are injured, so you have to focus on that. And that takes away the, or the, the noise of day-to-day living in this oversubscribed society we're in, that we're then there in the moment. And that, that to me, is my form of meditation. Conrad is one of the most prolific explorers and mountaineers in the world today. Of course, I probably don't need to tell you this. I am guessing that you already know who Conrad is. And maybe like me, you've already sat white knuckled as you watched Conrad along with Jimmy Chin and Renan Ozturk in the documentary, Meru. It's the gripping tale of their attempt to climb the shark's fin on Mount Meru. Now, if you haven't seen it, I won't give any more away, I promise, but you should go watch it. It's on Netflix now. Because Meru, like everything else that Conrad takes on, is about so much more than just summiting a peak. And not to sound too corny, but it really is about the climb. To get to be successful in whatever you do, you have to fail quite a few times. Because then you learn those mistakes and you're better at it. If you succeed the first time, it was too easy. I think Conrad thought I was a little kooky when I asked him to be on a yoga podcast. But as you listen to our conversation, as we talk about taking risks, facing fear, overcoming obstacles, and the responsibility that we have as human beings to take care of each other and this world, I know you'll get it. The Conrad Anchor, whether he knows it or not, is a yogi. Climbing in the Himalayas, you you ask the sadhus for blessing. Yeah, not even in, in, in anywhere one would go climbing, whether it's over there in in Asia or um, here in North America. So yeah, the indigenous people, mountains have always had a deep connection to the world's religions, and for many of the um, religions, there's still a connection to it. So. Um, the Greyhorn Butte or K2 
Cave Bear Rock or Devil's Tower, which is in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. So Devil's Tower is what it's known as as a national monument, but the native names precede that and what it should be known by. But there is um, glamorous respect in the month of June for a voluntary closure of the that. So that, but then other times there's uh, even climate. Um, Mount Aluhu, I think it is, or Ayers Rock in Australia now has no climbing on it or no reason to, for the Aboriginal people there. Mount Fuji for the Shinto religion has a special point to it. And for the Hindu religion, the source of the Ganga River and that where that their creation story comes from, the Ganga River, and so there's Shidling and Meru and um, um, Parvati. They're, they're, they're named after the, the Hindu religion. And one can imagine what it was like visiting these glaciers thousands of years ago. Just to get out there would have been an incredible trying journey to see it and to see the glaciers. And this, this was the other world. Before you went climbing last week when you were over here, you were climbing a route uh, a few different, and you would name to them. Yeah, there's one uh, little cliff that has several roots on it, and there's a feature within that that would have been, had we been in India, there for the sadhus and the practitioners of the Hindu religion, it would be a holy place because it's in a little cave, and there's um, nature that reflects humanity. So there's Chandra, which is moon, um, Shiva, there's Parvati, Haruman, Ganesh. So, and Ganesh has a big rock formation that looks like an earlobe. Haruman, which is um, this very physical, steep, upper body intense. Um, Parvati is the longest and the um, very welcoming route, and then Shiva is next to Parvati, and then there's Chandra, which is moon. Yeah, so there's a similarity to that, so there would be, but naming routes and when you're climbing and doing first ascent, climbing is kind of a, it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility, and you want it to be nice and not to be offensive, inspirational. Well, my, you met my friends from India last week, Tapanan Sahana, and you mentioned Nehru, and he was really excited to meet you because you summited Nehru, which means it's a sacred mountain. And because you went, he, he told me, you went and came down, you are a yogi, you are a special. Wow. You are a special person. I'm humble. <laughs> I just thought I was lost. <laughs> you consider it sacred, yes? Yeah. There, um, having been to the, the Himalaya since 1988, the, the people that I meet there have a greater impact on who I am rather than the actual climbing. I was drawn there to go climb and thought, oh, this is going to be great. And, a route on this or that peak and but when you come back you understand these people that live in these mountains and that they their goals and purpose in life are different than what what 
I am what I came to it with a very Western mindset of why one would want to go climb a mountain. What about them? Oh, gosh. Being in a, a valley that, that um, where there were not a lot of um, guest foreign visitors to it and, and, and seeing that and but also just um, saying hello and enjoying a cup of tea and you might not have as much language but the it makes one understand nonverbal communication and that they invite you in and they have and it's always it's observational we're a guest in their culture and, and so to see things and to open up your view of, of what, what things are. So. What have you enjoyed most about those cultures? There's, for the people of Nepal, where I've been visiting and traveling there, they're um, very, they're calm, they're happy, they're self-effacing, they're, they're not, and the people that I've interacted, there's always exceptions to those things, but just there's real acceptance of life, but celebration of it, and not this competitiveness to be ahead of another person. I mean, it's certainly there, but it, what do you pick up and what do you listen to when you're over in those places? You really immerse yourself when you go over, right? You're as best I can, but being. Six two, <laughs> I stand out. You're like, oh, you're a gringo, whether you're in Tanzania or in Nepal or so. Going back to the climbing, I did watch the movie Meru, and I was pretty much terrified as it opened to see you and to you all in that tent hanging from the, I, I did not know, I'm so naive. I didn't realize how you had to sleep. Like I didn't realize that the tent actually got hung. Like it, there was, there's nothing underneath you in the tent, right? Nylon. That was probably the scariest thing other than a movie. Cause in movies, you know, it's staged. Yeah. Like there's a, a green screen behind them and they, and they're making it look like you're actually hanging yeah, it blew my mind yeah and we're tied in and so we know what our systems are and so we've been able to um, use previous experience to get us to that point and as a climber so it was sort of a culmination of many different disciplines of climbing in different ways of uh, interpreting the mountains and then bringing them up there um, to play you said discipline Climbing or any pursuit that humans undertake with intent and purpose, and they then look to improve on it, whether it's needlepoint or painting watercolor or bowling or climbing or math problems or any intellectual or physical pursuit that is then elevated then becomes a discipline and a practice. And do you get so good that you stop being afraid? Always afraid. <laughs> well, yeah, fear is your self-preservation instinct. So there's, um, yeah, with perhaps when I was in my late 
teens and early 20s and my prefrontal cortex wasn't fully developed. I had no fear. They were trying to sell me t-shirts that said no fear, but uh, it was, <laughs> we have fear, so. You talk a lot about risk. So you're actually almost inducing the fear. I mean, if you put yourself, I mean, it, there are risks that we take and risks are scary. Yeah. And you talk a lot about risks being necessary. Yeah. There's, we can avoid risk and we just sit on the sofa and watch TV and eat convenience food or we harness risk and by understanding that we can see what risk in allows us to do with human potential both an intellectual and a physical standpoint by pushing us out of our comfort zone and having to evaluate the cost benefit of that at each moment really makes us opens up intellectual curiosity in a way that has allowed humans as a species to progress to the point where we are today. Risk is part of it. Do you think the fact that there's that element of danger and risk helps with the mind? In what I do as a uh, climber, it's a really key part to it. So it's um, the, uh, that you are in a situation where you can't have the same, um, you're in a situation where all the, um, the, the consequences of making a mistake or injury. So you have to focus on that. And that takes away the, sort of the, the noise of day-to-day -day living in this oversubscribed society we're in that we're then there in the moment. And that, that to me is my form of meditation. And I'm out there and that I come back more balanced. But that, and that's the way a lot of people will describe it. It's, it takes away the stuff that's not important. And you focus. Right? Yeah. Risk, danger, pain is a great attention getter. Yeah. Yeah, there, it's, um, again, anything that engages your self-preservation instinct, which is one of the oldest parts of the human brain. It's very old. It's reptilian. <laughs> and when you, when you go there, then you have good it brings out, it changes you. What about them? You've done a lot. I mean, you've done Everest three times, once without supplemental oxygen, and Meru, and so many others that you, you have done, but I can't believe that you've succeeded at all of them, right? Yeah, a lot of peaks, you don't make it to the summit, come home empty-handed. And so what do you, how do you feel when you do that? I just went out and we had fun. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it's not a guarantee, so. It's not about that. Yeah, it's that, well, it's that interpersonal connection you have with people in that environment that really makes it special where you have to trust each other and then you're giving your best to your partner knowing that their safety is, is also tied into your safety. And to get, to be successful in whatever you do, you have to fail quite a bit a few times and you learn from those mistakes and you're better at it. If you succeed the first time, it was too easy. 
I wish your wife Jenny was here. And I would ask her, how does she, and I'm going to say let in air quotes, let you go climb? Just, I think that for you to do it is one thing. I think it's a whole nother level of fear on her part, I would think. Is that true? Yeah, there's, and she knows it more than anyone. So my spouse, Jennifer Lowe, um, was married to Alex Lowe. It was 20 years ago, this October 5th, that he perished in a uh, avalanche in Tibet. And then 2001, we were married and been together now since then. And so, yeah, she very aware as a climber herself and then losing Alex into the mountains. And then I continued to, to go pursue that. So a tremendous amount of gratitude and respect. Alex always called her a saint <laughs> for allowing him to go climbing, but there's, um, yeah. The, um, the consequences of climbing are paid by the ones that are closest to you. Because if I fall off a mountain, it's like a light bulb that goes pop one morning when you put the switch on and the pain is relatively short and then you're gone. But for the people that are left behind, there's a there's a questioning and a burden that comes with it, their grieving process. I imagine you must have changed a great deal after Alex's death. Like in the way you looked at life and lived life. Yeah, I was I was thirty six at the time, so there was a the maturation that happened with it, and um, you know, part of it was this very expensive lesson that you live in the moment and that you live for others. And that comes at that cost is is most unfortunate. But when those things happen, if you can pull that away from it, then. You can move forward. We're about the same age, I think. I'm 53. I'll be 57 in a month or two. Wow. I can't not, not ask the question about age. It faces me all the time, and it must face you. How is that affecting you now? I mean, you're still out there. You were here. Okay, I'm going up Sacagawea and I'm dying and I'm being you. I'm like channeling my, my inner content um, as I'm going up this mountain. But I admit things are harder. How are you working with that now? Or are they harder? Are you just, yeah. are you immortal? No, okay. letting it go. All right. Letting it go. I'm not, yeah, if you're trying to chase what you were doing in your 20s and 30s, then you're going to be let down. So. Be happy with what you have. Don't compare yourself to other people. At least there's always going to be someone more fit and stronger and slimmer, smarter, all that, earning more money. So just be happy with who you are. And the, um, the experience that you have is still as meaningful as, as it was. The experience that I have climbing is still the same experience and the same intrinsic reward that comes to me that it was when I was in my 30s. So even if it's not as extreme? Oh, yeah. 
it doesn't have to be. Yeah, you don't have to do the loop de loop roller coaster all the time. You can do just the wooden one too. You're still the wooden fun. one counts. Yeah. You had a heart attack on one of your climbs a couple years ago, right? Yeah. How did you know, stay calm? I'm imagining you you regulated. Your mind had to have done something. How did you not? F- freak out. Well, at first I was, um, it was November 16th, 2016 on Lunagri, which is a peak on the border of Nepal and Tibet. And I was there with my climbing partner, David Lama, we were at about 5,900 meters. And uh, I had a blockage in my left interior descending artery. And um, at first I thought I would just sort of, oh, I'm not feeling well. Maybe I am hungry or I didn't do something right. But then it was, um, painfully obvious what had set in and that it was a um, instead of an immediate like getting hit by an avalanche it was this slow conversation with the recycler today's your day and you're like talking back no it's not you remain calm and so Fortunate fortune, sir, was, I was able to find a, a, a helicopter evacuation in nine hours after the onset of that. I was in Kathmandu and um, through the great work of Yadav Bata and his team at Norfolk Hospital in Kathmandu, they put a stint in. And so, uh, nine hours later, I mean, so you were in pain. Right. And in the mind, you, you, you didn't, you didn't get into panic. You. Well, it was pretty immediate. It was like, oh, we have to get down. And so knowing all the systems and David went first and built the belays and then we rappelled off and climbed through the ice fall and got back to our advanced base camp where we had you know, two friends. And then we prepared for the uh, helicopter. But I love the way you make this sound like it's not a big deal. Like, you, you know, we just went down. You are in pain at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. You don't just lay down and go, I don't, I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine. Then you wouldn't, you wouldn't, if you just lay yeah. down and do whatever, you're just going to die. No, you're going to fight. You're going to not give up. So, but you, if you are struck by using up a lot of your energy, both mental and physical, worrying or being there, you just have to say, what's the best use of my mental energy at this point? Rather than thinking about possible worst case scenarios, identifying them and saying, no, I'm not gonna get hit by a meteorite today. So the task on hand is to get through the ice fall and get a uh, effective rescue. So you override those things that come in and you just go, Oh, yeah, do something different. Which is the same thing you talked about being on the mountain. You just, yeah. all of a sudden, you just zero in and you takes away the other stuff. But trying to harness that in a non-risk situation is a challenge for me. I have to really focus and bear down. I have to have a to-do list and I have to say, okay, I'm not going to get out of this chair. Me too. I'll put my mobile device in a different room while I work. I'll say, okay, I'm just going to do email and not get distracted by this or let the phone ring. So, 
we must have gotten better though. This can't be all for naught, right? I mean, you, I mean, <laughs> there has to be some growth because sometimes I think, why doesn't it translate? Why can't I be disciplined? Yeah, well, and maybe focused those, all the time. Those are the truly enlightened people. So we just we have something to aspire to. So I just have a little bit <laughs> I have longer to go. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> Would you consider climbing an isolated activity that you do? I mean, would you consider everything that you've done and mountaineering, being in the mountains, is that just an isolated, just a thing you do? At this point in my life, it is defined who I am. And it is so through and through my fabric that I can't escape it for better or worse. (laughs) Through joy and tragedy, it's there. You are known for your devotion to family, to the environment, um, to even the to to the places that you've visited. Do you think some of those things we call it dharma, like uh, knowing your purpose, and some of those things happen? by way of suffering and and things that we've experienced that kind of, they call like the dark teacher, like things that kind of wake you up to, or wake up something inside of you. Do you think that that would be true? Yeah, there, um, hardship creates lessons. um, uh, It's not pleasant, it's not enjoyment, but there's things that we can learn about ourselves and where we are in in our life and how we interact with other people. So it's certainly worth doing and finding that balance and and where that might be is for each individual that's their own journey. What's your next chapter? Where are you headed? What are you doing? Well, good that we ask. Um, Yeah, we, this planet, it's going to spin for another four and a half billion years approximately till our sun becomes a white dwarf and it envelops all the planets, past where is gone. And so people are always like, oh, we have to take care of Earth. Earth will be just fine. It's human's capacity to live and to be part of this planet that is this huge challenge that our generation and the next two or three generations face. Um, that they, how do we address this um, this carbon conundrum where we're heating up the planet and it's changing faster than we will be able to adapt from a evolutionary standpoint, but we can adapt through a mechanical tool using type of standpoint. So where does that be in there? And with an ever increasing population, 7.4 billion people on this planet and they all um, they all want what we have here in the United States which is comfortable life. I mean, life is really easy here we have yes. a very high carbon intensive lifestyle we we're in the lap of luxury but we want that same level of comfort and dignity for food and 
shelter and clothing and all that for many other people on this planet. So how do we address that? So that's um, being part of this collective movement that we then understand human impact on the planet and what can we do today that will then benefit people 200 years from now. So that means holding truth to power. <laughs> Got any ideas for us? Oh, yeah. It's vote. Vote. Yeah, get out and vote. And that's a. It's a. Yeah, we're dark times. We should encourage politicians to practice more yoga and do more climbing because it's pretty humbling when you get schooled in climbing, you come away from it and you're not like, I'm the best. It's sort of like, ooh, I almost died. <laughs> yeah. A little more humble. A little humility would be good. But also appreciation, don't you think too? Like, I, you've seen some of the most beautiful places on earth. If people got out and experienced that, maybe politicians they went climbing maybe you should take you should take them climbing for though you know for those two and like take them hiking and if they saw that that would yeah. you'd realize what we're in danger of losing yeah or hurting yeah there's if you live in an artificial environment and you live in that human construct you're not going to really know what thermal regulation is no it's uh but if you go hike up a mountain and then you sweat and then you get cold and it snows or it hails and you have to be mindful of getting hyperthermia, all those things really make you more aware of the environment. And so by getting outdoors and seeing that and then interacting with environments that are threatened and under change as a result of climate change is really reinforces that. Well, we live in a very intense existence, very oversubscribed, so much data coming and just driving, knowing the rules and left Like I mean, there's so much stuff that we're focusing on. We live in a, in a rectilineal world. I mean, there's squares, there's look at the television set and see what that is and when you go out to nature every leaf is going to be different even though there might be an aspen leaf it's going to still have that same it'll be a, a very on that that mutation just as every thumbprint is different and every zebra stripe is different and so that randomness of nature and going outside is and walking on a trail and seeing trees and just is is a very relaxing way to go. And if you hike up a trail, you might see a tree that you've seen 75 times, but you might see it in a slightly different way. Do you want to say anything about the climbing school? Yeah, so um, thank you for the, uh, the ask. And so after Alex's passing in uh, 2000, 1999, 2002, Jenny and I came up with the idea to, as a way to honor him, to um, offer vocational training to high altitude workers in Nepal, so that's been our focus. So, 17 years of doing it and a, a building that was constructed for it, and so it's all 
So they are safer at their work. Yeah, people might not realize why that's so important, why that climbing school there is so important. Some of the most dangerous and technically challenging mountains in the world, and whereas I had had this progression of going from the Sierras to Mount Rainier to Alaska, Canada in there too, just kind of moving your, your... your goals as a climber that you come with a lot of experience but for many of these people they all of a sudden they're like thrust into it and they're there and they're um they're it's an economic opportunity but they don't have that background training so and the best way to teach these skills is through an appreciation of it so it becomes an avocation not strictly a vocation so if you are passionate about something and you like to do it you become better at it and whether it's designing rockets or climbing mountains if it's something you really want to do not just doing it because it's the money there's economic incentive you will become better at it and so fostering that and so it's um, run by Nepalis uh, staffed by Nepalis and it's going to get that get that going that's amazing I follow them on Instagram Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I love watching. I mean, I've just been really excited about it because I thought, what a wonderful way to give back and to and to help because yeah. they do really put their lives at risk. Yeah. And yeah, it's been the the underside of Himalayan climbing is that it comes at the expense of these people. So to give something back and try to take that. So rather than use the position and station I have in life to increase more position and station. I'd rather use it as a lever to create better and more equitable living conditions for all of humanity. And that's why you're a yogi. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag not worthy of the yogi. And thank you for listening and subscribing to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to receive your podcasts. Don't forget to visit ashangadispatch.com for all the links and notes pertaining to today's show with Conrad. And plus, while you're there, make sure that you're on our dispatch email list. That way, you'll be the first to receive each month's new episode as soon as it's out. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Peg Queen, along with Megan Powell. Music is by Mark Pilly. And a big, loving shout-out to our wonderful friends who support the show and keep it free of ads and sponsors. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> we literally could not do this without your help and support. <laughs>